Are you still using a pen and paper system for traceability? Do you know what the GFSI standard is for food processors? If you're looking to streamline and automate your operation, we have a great guest for you today. Jeff Chilton from Intertech Alchemy has worked in the food processing industry for over 20 years. Jeff and Intertech Alchemy have helped many food processors to establish and enhance their traceability system. You're not going to want to miss this episode. You know, we've seen companies implement solutions where they can now trace products, you know, with 100% recovery in as little as 15 minutes. Hi, I'm Andy. And I'm Joe. And you're listening to the Farm to Fork Podcast, brought to you by Carlisle Technology. Today's topic is on how processors can develop a GFSI-compliant traceability program. Our guest today is Jeff Chilton from Intertech Alchemy. Jeff, do you want to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about the company that you represent? Sure, I'd be happy to, Andy. It's an honor and a privilege to be able to join you today. So again, my name is Jeff Chilton. I'm Vice President of Consulting for Intertech Alchemy. Uh, Just a quick personal background. I actually worked directly in the food industry for 15 years as a Director of Quality Assurance and as a plant manager during that time. And then for the last 23 years, I've actually been consulting to the food industry and helping companies to be able to comply with their GFSI programs to achieve GFSI certification and sustain those certifications successfully as well. And then we also help companies with both FDA and USDA regulatory compliance, and we teach a number of industry standard training courses like PCQI and HACCP training as well. The company that I work for is called Intertech Alchemy. Intertech Alchemy has been in business for about 15 years, and it's actually the leading company that provides frontline employee training for employees. And we focus a lot on the food industry. We're in actually in 68 of the top 100 food companies, so we have a great depth and penetration in that market. But we also work with all types of manufacturing companies as well. And Intertech Alchemy provides a training platform for frontline employees that address both food safety and workplace safety requirements. And they just have some great solutions in place to help train your frontline employees on those topics. And then some additional products and solutions related to the verification of training effectiveness and also helping document the SOPs. And then I actually run the consulting division of Alchemy, where we help companies with that GFSI compliance and regulatory compliance and with their training needs as well. And then Alchemy was acquired by Intertech in 2018. So we're now known as Intertech Alchemy and we are the people assurance side of that business. Jeff, I didn't realize that you were actually a plant manager at one point. That's pretty neat. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure, I'd be happy to. So during that 15 years that I worked in the industry itself, actually started as an hourly employee right on the floor working for a Sara Lee company making hot dogs. I was running the chopper. Then over that 15 years, I actually moved up into some various types of manager positions, starting with a supervisor and then ultimately a superintendent and then became a plant manager. And along that journey in between, that's when I was a director of quality assurance for a company that had two different locations as well. And then a plant manager actually in two different facilities, both owned by the same company towards the end of that 15-year career there. So, you know, it was just a great way to get a good blend of both operations experience and quality assurance experience both, which did prepare me for my consulting career. Yeah, I was going to say, I bet that that experience was invaluable for you when you now transitioning over to more of the consulting and helping food processors develop these programs and stuff like that. Right. Yes. Yeah. It provided a great background. And fortunately, I've been blessed to be able to leverage that over a long consulting career too. 18 years of that was independently through Chilton Consulting Group. And then I sold that company to Alchemy in 2015. And we've essentially done the same thing as the consulting division of Alchemy. 
Oh, that's great. Where are you guys located? Alchemy's headquartered in Austin, Texas, uh, which is a great city to visit. We do training programs there at least once per quarter. So if anybody'd like to join us, it's a good reason to come to Austin as well. Uh, and then personally, I'm actually located in Dalton, Georgia. That's a little bit north of Atlanta and just south of Chattanooga, Tennessee in that northwest corner. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for that introduction and really happy to have you on the podcast with us today. So let's get into a high-level overview of what are the GFSI requirements in relation to food traceability. Okay, thanks, Joe. And the GFSI, just to clarify, is the Global Food Safety Initiative. This is the group that sets essentially the benchmarking requirements that other companies that are known as certification program owners, and that would include like SQF, BRC, and FSSC 22000, actually have to base their audit requirements on the benchmark standards that are actually set by GFSI to be a recognized type of audit. And under the GFSI benchmarking requirements, which were updated in 2020, there's actually two different food safety management procedures related to traceability. The first one in 14.1 actually does require procedures to be established, implemented, and maintained to be able to document the traceability. And it requires it two ways. It's one is one back. So you have to be able to go back to the supplier to know which ingredients became and components became ingredients uh, of the finished product itself. And then secondly, you have to be able to go one forward that is able to trace that product to the recipient of where that product is actually shipped to. And then the second benchmarking requirement is 14.2, and that requires all companies to document tests to assess the operating effectiveness of the traceability system itself. Uh, So those are the actual GFSI requirements. And then again, the specific CTOs like SQF and BRC and FSSC 22000 set their own standards, utilizing that as a minimum, and then they set their additional requirements there as well. And all of those standards do require both traceability and lot identification procedures to be in place. And then, of course, trace exercises, which have to be completed at least annually. Where do you see, like, in that whole trace back, trace forward, where do processors typically struggle the most, would you say? You know, companies have made some pretty good strides over the last several years in this area. Um, Originally, a lot of companies didn't even have traceability systems in place for many components, especially packaging materials and processing aids like that as well. So a lot of companies just had to start from scratch to a certain extent to be able to figure out how are they going to do lot code identification of these various components? And then ultimately, how are they going to capture that information, whether it's going to be a paper-based system or if they're going to use a technology-enabled traceability system, which obviously is certainly a far better way to go. I mean, you know, we serve customers of all sizes. So we've got some of the really large ones that have huge traceability programs. And then we've got some really small kind of mom and pop shop type processors that are still using kind of spreadsheets and paper-based type systems. And you can just tell that it takes them a long time, even though they're not doing as much throughput, that these recall windows for them, you know, can be pretty painful. Yeah, it's a real challenge for many companies. And, you know, part of that challenge, when we think about traceability, we really need to think about it from three different components. And one is the actual traceability of the raw materials themselves, to be able to know specifically which raw materials and which specific lot codes of those raw materials actually went into the finished product. And that does include processing aids, which are often overlooked through that process. And then secondly, packaging materials that, you know, good traceability systems also require the traceability of all packaging material lot numbers to show which lot numbers of packaging materials were actually used during the packaging of that specific lot of finished product. And then, of course, most companies already had a leg up on the finished product traceability to be able to have some type of lot code, such as a, a used by or best buy type date or a Julian date, um, to be able to trace that product one forward to the 
recipients. Um, although we did see a lot of companies that didn't even trace for the product shipped to their customers, which lot codes of that product was actually shipped. A lot of companies have had to make improvements in those areas as well. Really all three of them. On the raw material side, you said that that includes processing aids. What do you mean by that? Like what would be considered a processing aid? A lot of companies use processing aid during the manufacturing of their product that's not actually listed on the label or the ingredient statement of the product itself. And that's just to help facilitate the manufacturing of the product itself. Uh, Just to give you a few examples of that, like many different types of companies that make nutritional bars, as an example, may use different types of oil-based sprays on the equipment just to provide the lubrication for the material to be able to flow through the equipment properly. And that could be considered a process. Aids. And other things even include things like CO2, like a lot of companies use carbon dioxide to be able to chill products during parts of the process. And then at the packaging step, another example of that could even be nitrogen that is used for like gas flush type operations and all. But all of those inputs to the processes also require to be traced as well. I know when we work with a lot of our customers, one of the big things is the packaging material. And it's a little bit of more of a black box in a sense that a lot of raw material, like, you know, if they're receiving inboxed meat or spices or things like that, a lot of it kind of comes in labeled and is easy enough to kind of uniquely identify so that, you know, when they're tracking product, they can see what went into which batch specifically. But the packaging material can be a little bit more difficult to get that granular with. And, you know, a lot of it's kind of a first in, first out type of thing where they're kind of estimating what product. Uh, packaging material went into which finished good products. Yeah, that that can be a challenge for a lot of companies. We've seen companies use different approaches to be able to track the packaging materials. Obviously, the best practice is if you record the exact lot number of each packaging materials used in each lot of finished product as well that gives you the best traceability of all. But we've also seen companies take a more generic approach that, you know, when they actually issue the packaging material from the warehouse, they're recording the lot numbers of the materials at that stage of production to know at least which lot numbers were used on which days of production. So in that case, it may not tie to a specific finished product lot, but at least that way they do have some method of traceability to know which day those lot numbers of packaging materials were actually used. But obviously that's not the best practice because that could expand the scope of a recall in the event that something were to be wrong with those packaging materials, which is a low likelihood, but, you know, always a possibility. Yeah. So speaking to that, then what are the requirements when it comes to a food company's ability to do traceability exercises and mock recalls? All the audit standards that I mentioned, like SQF, BRC, and FSSC 22000, do require both traceability exercises and mock recalls, at least annually. And please keep in mind, you know, these are actually two different activities that a lot of people, you know, would mistakenly think a traceability exercise and a mock recall are the same thing, but they're really not. So the, the traceability exercises really should be completed for a raw material, a finished product, and a packaging material as a best practice. It's certainly recommended to do all three to be able to test your systems and to be able to do that at least annually. And then most auditors, just like I'm personally, I'm certified as both an SQF auditor and an SQF consultant. So I am in the plants doing audits on a regular basis as well, along with the consulting projects. And all of our consultants on the Intertech Alchemy consulting team do the same thing. But most auditors, uh, including myself, would require a company to actually perform a traceability exercise during the audit. And when I do an audit, the way that I like to do that is to choose one of the products that I know that they make on a pretty common type basis. And then what I'll do is I'll choose a production date and go back 
60 to 90 days or so and just choose a random date somewhere in that period of time and ask when did they last produce that product within that given date range. And then I'll choose that as the finished product lot number that I want them to do a traceability exercise on. And then the company actually has to go back and track through all the production records or their traceability system using technology, be able to show exactly what all the raw materials and the packaging materials went into the production of that finished product. And then as far as the one forward is the where did that finished product ship to as well. So that's just a standard part of all the audit processes that companies need to be prepared to be able to meet on a moment's notice. And ultimately, companies can set their own standards for the results, but certainly best practices in the industry would expect at least a 98% or greater recovery within about a four-hour period of time. Do most processors hit that four-hour window of time, or does that usually take some time to kind of refine their process so that they can actually hit that window? You know, it's totally dependent upon how sophisticated their traceability systems are in place. You know, those utilizing technology solutions certainly hit it within that period of time and generally much faster than that as well. I've sat through some painful audits before where companies have used paper-based systems and, you know, they're digging for production records and, you know, oftentimes can't meet that requirement or just can't generate all the documentation necessary to, to truly track all of the components of the raw materials. Keep it in mind, a finished product may have up to 10, 15 different components of raw materials that go into it as well. So the ability to be able to track that for each of those raw materials and packaging materials going in, into the finished product without the technology-enabled system certainly makes it a much more challenge. And, and I've definitely seen companies that have failed to meet that window of time when they do use paper-based systems. What would you say, like, I mean, it's, it's pretty clear that there's such a benefit to these electronic traceability systems versus the paper-based systems. What's the pushback? Is it the, the cost or the, you know, the overall expense of implementing that type of a system? Or why do a lot of processors kind of avoid that and stick with the paper-based system? It's really a reluctant change to start with that, you know, companies are just scared of change in general for the most part. And then beyond that, you know, there's just some uncertainty until they really do their homework and explore what the options are out there. There's a concern that, you know, the cost is going to be prohibitive from that standpoint. So then sometimes they don't even really take a look at it as much as they should. But there's certainly, you know, some good solutions that are on the market that are affordable as well. And FDA is going to encourage companies to do that and even incentivize companies to do that as well. So I think the two main barriers are the reluctance to change and then the, the potential cost implications or perceptions of those costs. And then that kind of holds companies back. But, you know, once you can get over the fact that, you know, this is a better way to do it, that it makes life easier, faster, and more accurate, then you can really take a look at what those solutions are, budget form, and then you'll see the benefit for the operations themselves. It's good to hear that the FDA is looking to incentivize processors to kind of get the tech-enabled traceability. I know we've done a podcast all about grant funding for the food industry to, to kind of acquire these types of systems. And that's mostly on the Canadian side because I know, you know, up here north of the border, there are quite a few grants and programs like that to help, especially the smaller processors, implement these types of systems. Yeah, and that's going to be a key component, the FDA's approach to traceability in the future as well. So there's certainly a guarantee and, and a promise by the FDA that they will incentivize systems like that in the future. So speaking to the topic about FDA regulations, let's talk a bit about what is the FDA's new era for smarter food safety? 
So this is a great concept for those of you that don't know, you know, Frank Giannis, who was the formerly in charge of food safety for companies like Walmart and Walt Disney World, became the deputy commissioner of FDA back in, I want to say 2019, could have been 18, a few years ago. And, and Frank has always just been a big advocate for technology itself. So Frank was the architect behind a blueprint that they created that was called the FDA's New Era for smarter food safety itself. This was introduced in July of 2020, and the blueprint actually does include four key pillars to be able to advance food safety in FDA-regulated facilities as well. Do you want to tell us maybe a little bit about what those four pillars are and kind of go through and explain each one of them? The very first one, number one, actually happens to be tech-enabled traceability. And of course, you can see all this on the FDA website. All you got to do is do a, a search for FDA New Era Smarter Food Safety Blueprint, and you'll see the same information that we're talking about right now. But just to show how important traceability is, it's actually number one on that list. So uh, the goal ultimately is to have end-to-end -end traceability throughout the entire supply chain. And then there's three main sections of the tech-enabled traceability. So the first part talks about developing developing foundational components to have the systems in place. And number two is what we just talked about, to actually encourage and incentivize industry adoption of new technologies. And then number three is leveraging the digital transformation itself. So those are all subcomponents under the pillar of tech-enabled traceability. The other three pillars of the new era smarter food safety, number two is smarter tools and approaches for the prevention and outbreak response. And then number three is for new business models and retail modernization. And then number four is food safety culture. Certainly, last but not least, an important topic in the food industry. What's the timeline for this program? Like, How do you see the FDA rolling this out? So this concept has already been rolled out. Um, again, it was introduced back in July of 2020, and this really sets the foundation for what FDA is going to be doing with their upcoming regulatory requirements. I believe even over the next decade that we'll see more and more regulatory requirements that'll be built upon this blueprint itself to help accomplish the things that have been identified. And, you know, even a year now after the implementation of this, there's certainly been a lot of, a lot of updates to this already including, which we'll talk about later, is the, the publication of a proposed rule for traceability. So, so I think this really lays the, the priorities out for FDA, and all of industry can expect to see updated guidance and regulatory requirements that will be coming from FDA around this foundation over the course of the next decade. How does tech-enabled food traceability help processors comply with this program? Certainly the tech-enabled traceability provides the best and most accurate way to be able to trace raw materials and finished products throughout the supply chain. The technology itself really automates the tedious lot code tracking that's throughout the process. And it also makes the information retrieval much faster than the paper-based systems as well. So, you know, essentially the tech-enabled traceability is just an great solution to be able to help companies comply with this throughout the process. And, you know, once FDA moves forward from the proposed rule from traceability into a final rule, then it's certainly going to be something that is going to be more of something that's going to be needed versus just something that's nice to have also. What is the new rule that's kind of coming down the pipe? 
You know, so FDA actually published a proposed rule for food traceability back in September of 2020, and the proposed rule is actually titled Requirements for Additional Traceability Records for Certain Foods. So FDA is actually going to ultimately mandate traceability requirements for certain types of food products above and beyond the existing regulations that are out there now. So can you give us a high-level overview of the requirements of this new rule? The traceability rule actually requires companies that produce certain products in what they call the, the food traceability list, or FTL as a, an abbreviation for that, to be able to establish and maintain records. And there's two main components to this traceability rule. So the first one is what they call key data elements, or KDEs, they use as an acronym for that. And that would, of course, include things like the lot code of the information and products as it's being tracked, you know, all the way from receiving throughout processing to the finished product to the shipment of the uh, finished product to the customers itself. And then the other key part of the rule is what they call critical tracking events or CTEs as defined for the acronym for those. And obviously that's when the lot codes are being changed during the course of processing and finished products. And then you may be converting from a, a raw material lot number that was given by your supplier to a, your own internally generated lot number it could be one example of that. And then as those raw materials ultimately become parts of finished products, then all of those critical tracking events have to be tracked as well. I wrote a blog recently on this same topic, and I found that it was interesting. You know, we service mostly the the meat industry. A lot of the, the, I guess, specific industries that are affected by this aren't necessarily the meat, but they're more of kind of produce or dairy or things like that. But one of the things that I found was interesting with the, the FDA wrote was that, you know, even if what you're producing doesn't fall into the list of this new guideline, it still is, you know, recommended as a best practice for anything that any food that's being processed. Absolutely. And FDA does state that specifically in the language and the guidance for the rule itself. Their guidelines could be applied to all food products that are regulated by FDA and encourage all companies, even if they're not required to comply with it, to still be able to implement similar systems. Under the FTL that's listed, as you mentioned, um, certainly it includes those high-risk products that are regulated by FDA that have been most commonly associated with outbreaks in the past. And this includes things like the leafy greens and certain types of fruits and produce and fresh fruit, fresh cut fruits and vegetables themselves. And then it includes other types of things such as ready-to-eat deli salads, cheese, a number of seafood products for crustaceans and fin fish, tropical tree fruits, and a number of other items as well. But those high-risk products that have been associated with outbreaks. So uh, this is certainly part of the risk-based approach that FDA is taking to look at this from a scientific standpoint about where the real needs are. And in the event of an outbreak like this, how can we make sure that we can identify what types of products are in the marketplace and then have the systems in place to be able to retrieve those quickly uh, from the supply chain to be able to prevent further people from getting sick or dying as a result of these types of outbreaks too. But So I think FDA was wise to take a risk-based approach and certainly target these specific types of food sector categories. But I think the entire food industry can learn from this, uh, not only FDA companies as they recommend and encourage, but even USDA-regulated companies. And of course, it's USDA that regulates meat and poultry plants, and that's an entire 
different jurisdiction and an entire different set of regulations themselves. But typically, one agency sort of follows the other in these areas. So even for those meat and poultry companies, I would definitely consider the new type proposed traceability requirements considered to be best practices also. And even meat and poultry companies should be implementing similar types of programs for their own companies. And go ahead and take a proactive stance to do that now before it's actually dictated in regulation, which is likely to come later. Yeah, that's what I was kind of thinking too, is that, you know, especially because they're hinting at the fact that, hey, even if you're not included on this list, this is a best practice to pay attention to. Kind of seems to me like, you know, one of those key indicators that, you know, get ready because it could be coming to your industry as well too. So. Absolutely. So what are the implementation dates of this program? The traceability rule will have to be implemented within two years after publication of the final rule for all processors. And the interesting thing about the traceability rule is it's not going to be phased in. And actually, when it becomes effective, it's going to apply to all companies, regardless of the size, that are making those types of products that are identified on the food traceability list that when other FISMA rules have been implemented, that had always been done on based on company size. So like large companies with greater than 500 employees would have to do it first, then medium-sized companies would do it typically a year later, and then smaller companies would do it yet another year later after that. But FDA is expediting that time frame. So two years after the publication of the final rule, all companies that produce those products will be required to comply. The last comment that I'd like to make is, you know, FDA has certainly reserved the right to update the food traceability list on a regular basis or as they see fit based on risk. So even if you think you're not included in that list now, then there's certainly a possibility that you could be included on that list in the future, especially if uh, it is a higher risk product or if an outbreak occurs from those types of products also, they'll definitely be moved up into the food traceability list too. Yeah, this is great. We've talked about GFSI audit requirements. We've talked about the FDA regulatory practices and how a food processor can start to look at how to take the steps in order to implement this. But how does a processor actually develop a traceability program? So the first step is to define the lot coding practices that'll be used for the raw materials, the packaging materials, and the finished products. So then next, you know, companies will have to determine how the lot codes are going to be tracked at each stage of production. And then the company should evaluate the technologies that are available to capture all the required information. And then once finalized, the system should be implemented. And most importantly, they need to be tested repeatedly to be able to make sure that they're working. And then the systems and the traceability procedures themselves have to be documented and then incorporated into the written food safety and the quality management system. Let's take it like another level deeper. Let's go into each of the three kind of categories we talked about earlier, where we've got, you know, the raw material, the finished goods, and then also the packaging. What does it look like? What are some best practices around uh, tracking for each one of these areas? Raw materials are interesting, and I've actually seen companies do it successfully two different ways. One is that they can track their supplier lot codes in their own paperwork and use those supplier lot codes all the way through to track it to the production of their finished products is one way to do it. Or another popular way that I've seen is to convert the supplier lot code to an internal lot code that could be tracked and then correlated back to the supplier lot code. So in in cases like that, typically during the receiving process, there would be paperwork and documentation within the technology system itself, what the supplier's original lot code was, and then the system itself would generate a new lot code that would be used to track that forward from that point on through the next step of the production process. So either of those can work successfully. 
And then how about finished goods? You know, the finished goods are, are typically a little bit more simple. Most companies will do that depending upon how they put a code date on their finished products. Um, a lot of companies will either use a best by date or a use by date, and often that could become the lock code. Some companies use a Julian date that just has the, the three-digit code for the day of the year that it was produced. Um, or some companies do choose to use just an internal coding system itself. So any of those options are available to you as long as you define what the method is that you're using and have the ability to track that. The other key point that I'd really like to make when the tracking of the finished goods, because we work with lots of companies that even have multiple plants that are owned by the same organization or multiple shifts within their operations and multiple production lines within their packaging departments that may be producing the same time or same type of product itself. So when you have situations like that, you know, well beyond just tracking the production date itself, you really want to record either the shift or the actual time that the product was packaged so you could correlate that back to a shift. You also want to be able to track the line number that the product was produced on. And if there are multiple plants within an organization, then of course you want to record which plant that product originated from as well. Hey, what benefit would they see by going all the way down to the individual line? Is that kind of reducing your traceability window a little bit so that when you are recalling product, you're not recalling the entire day? Or what benefit are they getting? Yeah, that's exactly right. So by doing that, what you're able to really accomplish is to actually limit the scope of a potential recall situation. So in the event of, that you had a situation, say that you were producing product on a certain packaging line, say as an example, there may have been a foreign material contaminant on that packaging line that could have contaminated a particular lot of product, um, that if you're coding by the specific line number, then you could limit the scope of that recall to that specific line where the contamination occurred, uh, as compared to if you were producing that same product on multiple packaging lines that didn't have the same risk of contamination that occurred, then the product that was coded for those other lines then would not have to be included in the scope of the recall. So it certainly helps benefit by minimizing the amount of product that may potentially have to be recalled. I know I'm putting you on the spot here a little bit, but when you look in your background and you know how you've helped companies with recalls and things like that, what would you say is probably the most common reason for a recall? Would you say it's like a mislabeling or is it you know a foreign object in the product or a foodborne illness or why do you see recalls happening these days? You know, unfortunately, the number one reason for a number of years had been related to allergens and undeclared allergens that were in the finished product. So companies that were just not producing product that was labeled accurately, uh, which seems like it would be a simple thing to control. But in reality, it's not. And it was actually the number one leading reason for recalls for the last five years, actually up till 2019, and especially in USDA environments in that case. And in 2019, actually, four material in USDA environments became the number one reason for recalls in those situations. So, you know, companies just have to have the right procedures in place to make absolutely sure that they're putting the right label on the right product that does properly declare those types of ingredients and allergens that are included in them. And really what caused those types of recalls in the past was companies uh, oftentimes either did not have good line clearance procedures. Uh, and what I mean by that is if they were changing over and going from packaging of one product 
to packaging of a different type of product. A proper line clearance is going to make sure that all of the previous products and the labels for those previous products have been totally removed from that production line. And then when you're ready to start the new product, you only have that new product and the new labels that are there for that. What we've seen, you know, as a worst practice is companies that'll get multiple different types of labels that are out on a packaging line. If they know they're going to pack three or five different products in a day, they may bring out labels for all five at a given time. And then somebody inadvertently grabs the wrong roll of labels or the wrong roll of film, and then ultimately that can cause the wrong label on the package itself. And then oftentimes, you know, recall for allergen reasons if the product contained an allergen that wasn't included on that packet. And, you know, it sounds too easy to avoid, but in reality, that happened far, far, far too often in many cases. And then the other situation with recalls is where they just got the wrong products mixed together. That oftentimes they may have inadvertently reworked a product that contained a certain allergen into a product that didn't contain that allergen, and then it found out that it wasn't properly declared. So you really have to have good procedures in place to be able to track all of those things. And then, you know, certainly from a foreign material control standpoint, it's been a huge issue in the meat industry itself, especially as I mentioned in 2019, there was actually over 14 million pounds of USDA regulated products that were recalled in 2019 just due to foreign material contamination. Personally, within our consulting practice, we work with a lot of companies to do foreign material control assessments, and we use a specific methodology that we that's called FEMA, or F-M-E-A, which stands for Failure Mode Effect Analysis, to really help identify the potential sources of foreign material contamination. That could come from the people, it could come from the product, it could come from the equipment, it could even come from the infrastructure, the building and all, uh, to be able to help identify sources of foreign material contamination and then be able to mitigate those risks too. So you just really got to have solid food safety and quality management systems in place for allergens and for foreign material recalls. And then I guess the last thing that I'll add related to that, you know, certainly could be the risk of a a foodborne illness outbreak, uh, which you typically aren't aware of until after the fact. But it goes back to the fact of having, you know, effective and robust environmental monitoring programs in place to be able to prevent that type of environmental contamination and, and to have good sanitation practices in place and your employee handling as well to be able to keep that from happening in your facilities. I know from Carlisle Technology, our system for all the labeling and allergens and things like that, we try to take a, a product file driven approach where all the label formats are held inside that product file. So if you're running a product that has certain allergens, we're pulling from the server what all those allergens are and then putting them on the labels for each one of those products instead of using pre-printed labels and things like that. You know, I know sometimes when you get into, you know, the food that actually goes on the shelves that the consumer is going to eat, you want the fancy pre-printed labels that with all the logos and things like that, but at least for all the case weighing and that sort of a thing, you know, we try to drive all that information from that product file so that we make sure that it's accurate, is helpful uh, in the mislabeling piece. Yeah, absolutely. That is definitely a best practice way to do it. And then to make sure that you don't have the risk of, you know, having the wrong label on the lines at the wrong time. So that's definitely, you know, certainly a much better way to be able to handle that as well. Then, of course, the key is, you know, controlling your formulas and making sure that you update those ingredient statements in the systems whenever change occurs. So, you know, a lot of companies need to make sure that they have real effective change management procedures in place to make sure that they keep the information in the system accurate as well. I know we talked a little bit about packaging, but let's just touch on the packaging piece one more time, kind of as a best practice around, you know, tracking the packaging material. 
Yeah. So when you think about packaging, there's a difference between primary packaging that's actually going to be food contact and secondary packaging that would be non-food contact also. Within the audit standards, it definitely requires traceability, the primary packaging that would could come into contact with the food itself. And, you know, as a best practice, you could track secondary packaging as well, but typically they're not mandated to do that by the audit standards itself. But what most companies would do is actually use their supplier lock codes and and track that information based on which packaging materials are used for the packaging of those finished products at that given time uh, to be able to capture that information successfully. So Jeff, can you tell us a quick story of how you've seen Processor develop a successful traceability program? Sure. So, you know, we've worked with many clients to help establish their traceability systems. And going back 10 years when GFSI started or, you know, earlier times like that, we're really even starting from scratch. And a lot of them just weren't even really tracking lock code information, especially for the packaging materials and the processing aids that we talked about, but sometimes even for the raw material components as well. Um, And then many were not tracking the lock codes of the finished products to the individual customers. So they knew how much of each product type that they shipped to a customer, but they didn't necessarily capture the lot code of that finished product. So, you know, a lot of companies have come a long way since that time. So rarely would I think you see a situation that bad at this point. So you've kind of had to drag companies along over the last decade to implement improved systems in this areas as well. And then when we were initially helping companies, we worked with a lot of different clients and did help them actually set up paper-based traceability systems to at least get something started to where they could capture the lot codes of the raw materials when it was being used during the mixing or the formulation processes when they were bringing that together or the, along with the processing aids and the finished products. But yeah, there's certainly limited success that we've had in that area that, you know, it just leaves a, an awful high risk of operator error in that case if they don't capture the right information or they don't fill out a form or a record properly. And then when you really go back and try to test those systems, you often find holes in the systems to where something wasn't tracked properly or even getting down to handwriting issues of trying to, you know, record a potential lot code or lot number of a supplier that may have 10 to 15 different digits. And then somebody's trying to write this down by hand, and then you can't even decipher their handwriting to be able to check it. So again, just a real limited success with those types of systems itself, but certainly the best in class to have implemented technology systems for traceability. And again, the technology just helps make it easier, number one. And number two, it makes it a lot faster. So you can retrieve that information. And then number three, it makes it more accurate. Those are the real benefits of the traceability systems. And we've worked with some companies that have implemented various types of traceability systems. Some of them have tied into their ERP system even using SAP and other types of systems like that. Uh, others certainly have used, you know, Carlisle solutions, which are great for the industry. And we've seen some other companies have used other types of systems like manufacturing execution systems uh, with companies like Plex or others that have been able to use it successfully. But, you know, I would just encourage all companies to investigate and do their homework and research what technology solutions are available to them. You know, we've seen companies implement solutions where they can now trace products, you know, with 100% recovery in as little as 15 minutes for far better solutions than what they had in their past. And oftentimes, you know, the cost is certainly not as prohibitive as what they're perception may have been to start with. So, you know, we definitely encourage companies just like FDA is to uh, go ahead and take a look at those tech-enabled traceability systems to be able to implement the best practices in this area for your company. Incredible to think about how, you know, we were talking earlier about these programs or these 
mock recalls and the goal being, you know, I think you said a 90% accuracy within four hours. And now you're saying that some of these processors can recover all the product 100% in as little as 15 minutes. And that's quite a, a big change from, you know, that original goal. Quantum leap technology enabled. So that's what makes it all work. And that's why I like, you know, what we do at Carlisle Technology, because I really enjoy seeing processors kind of take that advancement to the next step and see their excitement when they get a program like that, where they're able to do that recall so fast and just see the benefit and the ROI from a tech-enabled traceability system. It really is helping out the industry and kind of seeing it move forward. Yeah, it absolutely does. So, and, and, you know, certainly when I'm in companies doing audits or consulting work, you know, it gives me confidence as an auditor uh, once I see that they have good systems like this in place. And certainly the customers can see and respect the same thing to be able to prove to your customers that you have the ability to do that. Because, you know, recalls are a nightmare for the retailers that have to be able to pull products back off the shelves and things like that. So, anything and everything that we can do on the processing side of the business to help improve that and reduce the the scope and the amount of product that has to be recalled uh, is certainly a benefit to your customers also. I'd say one of the, one of the last things I would like to say is that, uh, you know, a lot of times we get some processors that are trying to move from the paper-based system into the tech-enabled traceability systems. And, you know, there's usually a key driver for that. Maybe they want to be able to sell to a larger reseller or something like that. Um, and so they're like, well, I need a traceability system. And so they come to us and, you know, we provide that for them. But then, you know, as soon as they meet that requirement of having that, you know, electronic traceability system, it kind of gets shelved and they put it away and there's, okay, we've got that, check that box and we're done. But really these systems are meant to be kind of maintained and updated and continually, um, used all the time. They're not just meant for kind of saying, yes, you've got it and sitting on a shelf. And so there's a big difference that you can see customers that really have a food traceability program, kind of like the one you're talking about versus ones that just say, well, I need this, you know, tech enabled traceability, and then I'm going to just put it on the shelf and move on. Um, and I think there's a big difference. And that's, that's kind of how you see people go from that four hour window to that 15 minute recall, because they really invested the time and the resources and got the training to be able to use these systems in the most efficient way. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And that, that's really one of the reasons why it's so important to test your system on a regular basis, that this isn't a one and done type deal. This is something that you implement and then you have to sustain and maintain as well. And the best way to do that is to be able to test your systems. And I've seen a lot of companies that have had to repeat their traceability tests multiple times until they got it down. And, you know, each time they would do it, they would find another hole in a different area. And then you plug that hole and then you try to do it again until you get to the point where you can meet these best in class standards that we've talked about here. But that's why it's critically important to test it and, you know, and why the audit standards would specify annually at a minimum to be able to do these types of traceability tests. But you know, I would certainly encourage industry and processors to be able to repeat those tests as many times as necessary until you have just great confidence that the traceability system is going to give you that 100% recovery in a very short window of time. Yeah, for sure. So Jeff, what is the call to action you would say to our listeners and processors who are looking to implement a food traceability program? Yeah, so I would encourage all companies to do an internal assessment, or certainly we could help do that in 
at for Alchemy Consulting. We go in and help companies to set up their traceability programs themselves. If you need outside assistance, typically what we find with our clients is one of two things. Either they just don't have time to do it on their own, or they don't have the expertise to do it on their own. So if either of those are a challenge for you, if you want to use a third party like Alchemy Consulting, we can certainly help you do that internal assessment to see what you have versus a gap analysis of what you need, and then help you identify how to close that gap and what kind of uh, procedures you can put in place to to help with that. So, you know, whether you do that internally or use a third party, I would encourage all companies to do an internal assessment to see if they meet the requirements for the GFSI systems and the new traceability requirements as defined by FDA as well. And then see if you need help or if you're going to have to do some, take some additional actions or get some new technology solutions to be able to help you do that. And then secondly, we're in the fall of this year, which is the time that most companies are doing their budgeting processes for next year. So now is actually a perfect time to be able to raise the question in your company, whether you need to allocate some capital expenditure funds to be able to implement these types of solutions in the future as well. And then do your homework, you know, go out there and find out once you identify what your needs are, what are the companies that can help you meet those needs, and then how you can implement improved systems in this area as well. And then, of course, if any company does want help, you know, we're always here at Intertech Alchemy Consulting to be able to assist with any of these types of services around GFSI preparation or internal audits, and then FDA FISMA compliance, USDA regulatory compliance, and any training needs that they have. So I would encourage companies to take a look at our website at alchemysystems.com, or you can contact me personally at jeff.chilton at alchemysystems.com, or my cell phone number is 706-264-1054. I'll even share that with you as well. And then certainly check out all the great solutions that Carnal Technology offers as well. That's great. Well, thanks so much for being with us on the podcast today, Jeff. We really appreciate it. Yep. You're quite welcome. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Yeah. Thanks for your time, Jeff. 